Today on Cross Defense, we look at Halloween and gnats and camels and different types of consciences, churchyards and sanctuaries. Stick around. We're talking about whether Christians can participate in Halloween. It's time to equip your mind, excite your imagination, and comfort your soul with God's Word. It's time for Cross Defense. I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California. Now, today on the show, we're talking about gnats and camels and our consciences <laughs> in light of Halloween. You'll understand more as we get into the show. We're going to take up that question, that age-old question that seems to come around every single year of whether or not it's acceptable for Christians to celebrate Halloween. Now, I've received an email from a listener with some excellent questions to guide us into this inquiry. Now, if you have any theological questions, anything that you are stimulated to, to consider that you would like to share with me, on the equipping of your mind, exciting of your imagination, and comforting of your soul, you can certainly do that by going to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S ferndale.com slash contact. That's what Eric did, and this is what Eric said. Perhaps a little late, but could you discuss whether celebrating Halloween is acceptable for Christians? By which I mean dressing up in costume sometimes gory, sometimes not, sending our children out to trick-or-treat, hanging decorations and such. I'm not sure if this is a matter of adiaphora or not. What about horror movies? Where can you find direction in this matter in Scripture? What does Luther have to say about these things? My personal thoughts are that we ought not try to see how close we can get to sinning without actually sinning. Nevertheless, I hand out bags of candy toothpaste, and miniature children's Bibles on Halloween slash Reformation Day. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you. Uh, what a great idea to hand out children's Bibles on Halloween slash Reformation Day. That is a good note to make. It is the same day. So uh, for some Lutherans, it's a non-issue because we just celebrate Reformation Day. But for others, this is a question that comes around, like I said, every single year. And thank you very much for a thorough question, thorough suggestion for the show, and really qualifying exactly what it is you wanted to know and in what kind of context. So first of all, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. You weren't too late. Um, that's just how things work. I wanted to, to put out a show that's contextual, serves my people here at St. Mark, serves the people of the Missouri Synod, serves you. So let's get into it. Is it acceptable for Christians to celebrate Halloween? obviously. Specifically, is it acceptable to dress up in costume? And I love that you made this distinction. Sometimes gory, sometimes not, and sending out our children to trick-or-treat and to put out decorations and to hand out candy to trick-or-treaters. And then you have followed it up with not sure whether it's a matter of adiaphora. So hold on to that. We're going to get to it here first in the show after we break down these questions. But thank you for clarifying what sort of celebration, because you know if you were asking if it was okay to go to a Satanist temple and, you know, you know participate in an abortion, then I would say, no, don't do that. Uh, don't do anything with the Satanist on Halloween. <laughs> don't do anything with the Satanist ever. Uh, if you want to know if you could participate in a, a Wiccan ceremony with your neighborhood gals um, out there in the backwoods, no, don't. Not even in your living room. Don't. It's not, not cool, not kosher. Uh, don't even, you know, sacrificing the cat in the backyard, no, that's not good either. Ouija board stuff on Halloween, I would stay away from it. No, yeah, let's, let's just not 
play with it. Let's not even go there. But dressing up in costume, handing out candy, and putting out, you know, ooh, spooky decorations in the season of the, the spirit of the season, that kind of a thing. That's what we want to talk about. And thank you very much for giving us that context. And then what about horror movies? You know, really, you know, all these are kind of going together. And thank you for clarifying it because it does speak to more than just one day a year, right? It speaks to this whole kind of cluster of things. And where can we find direction in scripture? And that's obviously where we want to go. And then finally, what does Luther say about these things? Now, I'm going to let Luther actually drive us to where to go in scripture, at least to one particular verse where we can go. This is a question that is just out there on the internet. You can Google this and you can look this up. And, and every year, in, in, even in the Missouri Synod, we talk about this. Your pastor talks about it, I'm sure. It comes around every year because consciences are bothered by the idea of celebrating Halloween. And so we end up addressing it over and over and over again. This is a particular verse that Luther points us to that I don't think is brought into the conversation too much. So we're going to spend the entire show really building up toward this one verse where we will talk about gnats and camels. And uh, we'll let Luther do the preaching. And he's much better at it than me anyway, so not a problem there. Luther is indeed a great guide for these sorts of questions. He preached a sermon that zeroes in on this question. Now, he didn't use the language of Halloween, but he does get to the core of it, the point of it. But before we turn to it, as I mentioned, I want to deal with this word adiaphora that Eric mentioned. Because some people might be new to Christianity or new to cross-defense and may not understand this fancy word, adiaphora. So if you would, be with, bear with me, Eric, for a moment as I explain this to others. We never want to leave anybody in the dust. I want to make sure that every cross-defender knows I have his back, uh, her back, and uh, we're going we're gonna to clarify these things. Now, in fact, what I want every single one of you to do, if you don't know about this resource, you might already have it bookmarked on your web browser, but if you don't, take down this URL or get ready to type it in in the new tab if you're listening to this on your computer. Uh, take down this URL because it, it's going to help you with all kinds of theological terms, all kinds of biblical words, uh, theological words to equip your mind as you think about what God's Word says. The, the resource, the webpage, is The Christian Cyclopedia. Now, I've already referenced this resource before in other shows, although I called it The Lutheran Cyclopedia, because in its print form, that's what it was published under. But online, it's a little more accessible to all of Christendom this way. It's referred to as The Christian Cyclopedia, and you can find it at this URL, cyclopedia.lcms.org. Yep, that's right, by our very own LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So that's C-Y-C-L-O-P-E-D-I-A dot L-C-M-S dot org, and it's a great resource. This is what the entry for Adiaphora says. Adiaphora is middle matters from the Greek for indifferent things. In the formula of Concord, we see that Adiaphora is mentioned as ceremonies or church usages, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in the word of God, but have been introduced into the church in the interest of good order and the general welfare of Christians. So in the Old Testament, lives of believers were far more constricted than they are in the New Testament, which is pretty obvious for anyone to see, in which in the New Testament, God lifted his yoke through Christ, 
not framing all human activity with his commands and prohibitions, but leaving many activities to the direction and judgment of the individual Christian. Now, I'm not going to read these next Bible verses to you, but I want you to have them in your ears and maybe be able to take them down, the, the addresses of them, so you can look them up on your own. Or you can just go to the you know, Christian Cyclopedia and click on them yourself. But it's Romans 14.3, 1 Corinthians 6.12, 1 Corinthians 10.23, and Colossians 2.16-17. Very good resources for understanding uh, this sort of thing. God has removed some matters from the domain of divine law into the domain of adiaphra. But adiaphra in abstracto, that's in abstraction as a concept, may cease to be adiaphra in concreto, in, in concrete situations under certain circumstances. For example, when holding life insurance springs from a lack of trust in God. So it's not commanded nor forbidden to have life insurance. You can, you can't, well, depending on what country you live in. Um, <laughs> but in, in relation to God's word, you can, you can't, it doesn't matter. But if you get an insurance policy because of your lack of trust in God to take care of you, now adiaphra ceases to be adiaphra because it's a matter of conscience. Understand? All right. A couple other examples they list here in the Christian Cyclopedia, when smoking injures health, when drinking exceeds moderation, when immersion and baptism is defended as the correct mode, and when cremation is an expression of atheism. So if someone says, you know, uh, cremation is what atheists do, and is forcing that out there. If that's your whole culture, all the atheists cremate are cremated, and, and it's really known. Now, all of a sudden, weak consciences and a clear confession of the truth are at stake, and so it can behoove the Christian to not be cremated because everyone else who's pagan and atheistic is being cremated, and so you're making a confession with the act. Okay, and there's a million different ways you could slice that, all these different examples. So we can talk more about that later if you uh, still need some clarification. Or you can ask your pastor. Pietists, in harmony with their doctrine of rebirth, denied the existence of adiaphra, quoting such passages as Romans 14.23, 1 Corinthians 10.31, and Colossians 3.17. But they confused the action itself with the life consecrated to God. There's more on the adiaphra entry. Adiaphra lie with the domain of Christian liberty. That's where within the, that domain, which may be defined as consisting of the freedom of believers from the curse, Galatians 3.13, and coercion, Romans 6.14, of the law, from Levitical ceremonies and from human ordinances, Matthew 28.8-10, Luke 22-26, Revelation 5.10. This liberty is the direct result of justification, John 8.31-32 and 36. Romans 10.4 and 1 Timothy 1.9. The doctrine of adiaphra is abused when it's made into a springboard for loose living, Galatians 5.13. Another abuse results from any attempt to make adiaphra a matter of conscience for others. So if you take this freedom and you're, you're forcing others, their consciences, is no longer about your conscience, but you're forcing other consciences to uh, adhere to yours, what's burdening yours, now the adiaphra thing is, is being abused. Okay, uh, we could keep going here, there's more to it, but for the sake of time, I'm going to leave you with that. Uh, well, maybe I'll say this last thing. The guiding principle here, yeah, this is important. The guiding principle here 
as always, must be love toward the weak. Romans 13, 10, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, and 6, 14. But without bolstering weakness or covering malice and stubbornness, Galatians 2, 5. So we're always concerned with our brother's conscience. If he's weaker than us, we don't want to do something that's going to cause him to stumble. At the same time, we don't want to encourage that weakness. We don't want to keep his his faith muscle uh from being used, we don't want to help him atrophy, right? We want to actually strengthen him and move him beyond where his weak conscience is, help his conscience get stronger. We want to move him from, as you will hear in the next few segments, gnats to camels, okay? We want to get his conscience from the churchyard into the church. I know you're going, what is he talking about? I'm going to get to it, I promise. Hang with me. We want to help the Christian brother go from weak to strong, we don't want to encourage his weakness, and we also don't want to use adiaphora to, to cover malice and stubbornness. We don't want to use it in that Romans way where we're like, oh, I'm free to sin, so I'm going to keep on sinning. And, and Paul says, by no means. No, no, no. You've been set free from the, from, by Christ from sin, but you don't want to keep on sinning. No, you want to stop sinning. Your heart's been converted. You, know, you no longer have a motivation to want to sin as a Christian. Sinning disgusts you. It's gross. You want nothing to do with it. The non-Christian is going, huh, how can I use this biblical language to justify and kind of get around? Where's the loophole here? Yeah, that's not a Christian spirit. So that's not what we're talking about. Okay. So, right, helpful stuff, right? Helpful, helpful stuff. Go spend some time exploring the Christian encyclopedia. Make it a part of your personal study, if you would. If it's new to you, do that. Use it as a devotional tool or something. Uh, Equip that mind, my friends. Equip it. And, and help yourself learn the vocabulary that will help you articulate and witness the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of the cross to your neighbors. We don't want anyone to perish. We want all to live. So uh, bolster bolster your, your mind and your faith that way. Okay, so now, and especially in light of those final words about bolstering weaknesses and, and consciences and these sorts of things, um, considering that what we do is out of love for our brother— And knowing more about the freedom of our own consciences, you have been set free by Christ. You have a free conscience on matters neither commanded nor forbidden by God. And how that it's not a license, it's not a license to live loosely, this adiaphora, nor a weapon to wield over the consciences of your neighbor. No, not at all. Now we're ready to to turn to what Reverend Luther preached, uh, his instruction and his advice to us. All right? So, he wrote this sermon based on Exodus 25, 9 to 27, 18. Yeah, the two chapters. We're not going to read all that, too, for the sake of time. We'd be here for quite a while. God's blueprint for the tabernacle is found in these verses, and that's what Luther is doing. He's he's using the, the blueprint for the tabernacle to then shape his sermon and deliver the message about consciences to his listeners and to us. And you can find it, this sermon, in volume 44 of Luther's works. Highly recommend taking a look at it if you want in, in its entirety. It, the, that volume is, is called The Christian in Society, number one. And the sermon is called Three Kinds of Good Life for the Instruction of Consciences. Now, as I turn there, let me say that every year, as I've said before, Christians debate whether or not it's acceptable to participate in Halloween. You can do a search online. You certainly can. You can go down that rabbit hole, okay? The different sects 
which you like to call denominations, the different sects have different teachings on this. Lutherans, being a part of the Orthodox and Catholic Christian church, that is little o and little c, are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so most of the time when you ask a Lutheran about Halloween, whether it's okay to participate in it or not, most of the time Lutherans are going to avoid saying no to that. We're not going to come down with a no that you shouldn't do that. And this scandalizes our American evangelical uh, counterparts in the, in the non-denominational sects, the community churches, the congregational churches, the, the evangelical free churches, your Baptist churches, your, your, all these sorts of things, uh, all your Protestant, most of the Protestants out there are going to be scandalized because Lutherans have no problem having a Halloween party, even at church. Now, we tend to have Reformation parties because Reformation is a pretty big deal, especially for Lutherans, but it should be for all Christians. The return of the gospel, right? Reforming of the church back to its original. So that kind of tends to trump uh, a commercialized celebration of Halloween for the church as an organization, as a, uh, as a body. But you'll find Lutherans having Halloween parties. We don't, I mean, you'll also find some of us having harvest parties, but that's more of an evangelical thing. That's, that's more of a Protestant thing. It's a, it's a way of having Halloween without actually having Halloween because their consciences are bothered by it. <laughs> so uh, they think we're horrible sinners, really. Many of them do because we don't outlaw Halloween. But see, Christianity, as I've already alluded to, is not legalistic. We're not puritanical. We're not pietistic. No. We're not pharisaical in our handling of God's word. And we don't imbibe in the practice of making man-made laws to burden the consciences of Christians, consciences that Christ Jesus has set free. We embrace the freedom of the gospel. The freedom of the gospel that delivers the sin-battered consciences to fresh air. Pastors guide and instruct. We don't command. We counsel individuals. We don't imprison congregations. With that, we're going to take our first break. And when we get back, we're going to hear from Luther. And we're going to find out an answer to Eric's question. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross Defense. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. So Luther's guidance begins with a review of how the Lord laid out the tabernacle. And this is the structure that Luther wants to use to, to make his theological point. The tabernacle was divided into three parts, he says. The first part was the holiest part of all and was called, as we know from Scripture, the Holy of Holies. The next was called the Holy Place. These two parts were joined together in one building. 
So one could go into one from the other as easily as going from one room to another room. The third part was called the atrium or the courtyard. Luther points out that the first two parts were much smaller than the courtyard and then notes that the structure of our churches and even our homes are modeled after the tabernacle's design. We divide them into three parts, he says, the churchyard, the nave, and the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the holiest. It's the holy of holies in the comparison. Then the nave being the holy place, and after that, the churchyard being the courtyard. The same three parts are to be found in the house. First, there is the yard. Second, the house. And third, the bedroom. Now, (laughs) as a side note, Culturally, we understand this, at least most of the time, without any explanation. We we sort of operate this way just by default. The parsonage here at St. Mark Lutheran Church, it doesn't have a fence around it. Many people on their way to Main Street will cut through my front yard. Recently, we've had a woman and her dog sitting under the shade of our birch tree for a good 30, 45 minutes at a time, just, just hanging out, just on her phone, playing playing whatever she's playing or checking her email or whatever she's doing there on the phone. Dog's just panting away, trying to get some shade, just hanging out. And while the woman feels comfortable sitting in my yard uninvited, she wouldn't dare enter the parsonage without an invitation. I just, she wouldn't do that. And inside the house, it's the master bedroom that is the most sacred of spaces. While the living room and the kitchen and other rooms are common spaces, the master bedroom is is not one that even the kids enter without mom and dad's presence. Usually. (laughs) The same is true for our church buildings, isn't it? The churchyard, the, the parking lot today, are the least holy spaces at church. And even non members make use of them from time to time. Next, we have the nave. It takes on a a new level of reverence, of holiness, if you will, as as all the Christians come into it and and, and take their seats in the pews. And and then finally, there's that particular awe and reverence reserved for the sanctuary, because this is where God is present to give us his gifts in word and sacrament. The altar's there with with communion, the Lord's Supper prepared for us, and the pulpit is there, and the, the, the Bible to be read from the lectern. And, and so we get, we get the holiest of holy places there where all this divine service is happening. Luther says, in this way, the Holy Spirit shows that there are three kinds of preaching or teaching which make for three kinds of conscience and three kinds of sin, as well as three kinds of good life with three kinds of good works. Now, all these differences are helpful, and a Christian, he says, needs to know them lest he continue, or excuse me, lest he confuse one with another and do nothing properly. He must not mistake the sanctuary for the churchyard, nor the churchyard for the nave. This threefold matrix of understanding, it becomes invaluable as we consider our Christian consciences in light of the question of whether it's acceptable for Christians to celebrate Halloween. Luther has us start with the churchyard, 
We spend a lot of time on this, and this is rightly so, because this is where so many people just end up stuck. And this is really where the question of Halloween ends up always going to, because where it's coming from, the context of our American culture, and how the conscience is being burdened by generally the Protestants and the preaching from the churchyard, as you will see. This preaching and teaching, he says, are concerned only with outward works, which are bound up with time and place. These matters are the ceremonies, the the outward performances and techniques in matters of of dress or, or food, which cause severe damage to the conscience if a preacher does not alert his people about them. As a result of this kind of teaching, people actually become hardened and blind. They become hardened and blind. Luther gives the example of, uh, of the uniforms, the clerical collars, the habits that the monks would wear, these sorts of things, and the jobs of the clergy, how they were wrongly connected to their view of salvation, to, the, to their view of, of a good and holy life, a justified life, a sacred life. He says, these are outward works linked to dress and occasion. And the person who does them believes he has done good works and is living a good life. When he has done them, he believes he has most certainly, certainly earned a good conscience. And then he has done the right thing. The opposite is true, too. If he overlooks one of them or neglects to do it, <gasps> I forgot to wear my collar to church today. For example, if he does not wear his garb properly or does not observe his canonical hours, he gets a bad conscience, like a man who's not kept the commandments. This, dear cross defender, is what many Christian sects do by creating man-made doctrines that prohibit celebrating Halloween. They're doing the same thing. They bind the freed Christian conscience with this churchyard type preaching and teaching that hardens hearts and blinds people to the real issues. Instead of preaching on sanctuary matters, church matters, they're focused on preaching parking lot stuff, externals. They're not getting into the, the depths of the heart. They're preaching externals to use Luther's analogy. Luther continues by saying, we, we reach the point where we make it a more serious matter of conscience for someone to eat a morsel of bread on the eve of a fast day than to soak himself in drink or to curse and swear, to lie, deceive, or commit adultery or some other serious sin. That is, to the question of Halloween, we make it a bigger deal to participate in Halloween with its devil costumes, its gory costumes, than supporting the demonic forces, for example, teaching little girls that they can dress up like boys and become one. That our daughters, nieces, cousins, grandkids don't have to stop with dressing up and pretending but can take puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and even have surgeries, chemically and surgically mutilating their perfectly healthy bodies 
to the point that they don't become the other sex, but are now a horribly disfigured version of their, well, their current sex, what they already are. Now only mutilated. Every single day we live among evil parents. Evil parents who are turning their kids into something far worse than Frankenstein's monster. And people who call themselves Christian support this evil. If only by silence, by acceptance of it, tolerating it, coexisting with it. But come Halloween, oh no, 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 that's wrong. We can't do Halloween, that's evil. No. We're Christians. If we're going to do anything, uh, let's, what should we do? Let's call it a harvest party. Exercising the demons from our midst. Let's pretend to be holy and pious. And 364 days of the year, besides, we will sleep right next to the evil in the bed. This is what's going on. And this is what Luther is talking about when he talks about churchyard preaching and teaching. It's the stuff going on externally that the world can see. It's it's low-hanging fruit. Rather than getting to the depths of the evil in the hearts of people. Let's continue. Sectarian pastors, and by that I mean the Protestant pastors and churches who are not standing wholly on God's word, see uh, the October 8th, 2022 episode that we had on that. They'll teach that Halloween is evil because it glorifies death. It glorifies the devil, the demonic, the darkness. But let me ask you this. What is the greater matter of conscience? Giving candy to a boy dressed as a vampire, therein affirming his perhaps questionable choice of costume, or participating in our public school system that has become a den of vampires feeding on the souls of our children, teaching our kids that being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer is not only okay, but God-pleasing. Why do we have a problem with the fantastical undead of fiction when it appears on our door with a cute little voice behind it saying trick-or-treat, but we've grown numb to allowing those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to influence the souls of our neighbors in the real world? Real evil is so much worse than the representations of evil we see one night of the year. Just think it over, Luther says. Such a view of conscience and error arise from the fact that people have got everything confused and do not differentiate one thing from another in the right way. Then sound instruction and the capacity to differentiate are gone. And before we know where we are, we have reached the stage where the worst is upheld as the best and the best as the worst. Is it not true that everybody spiritual and secular, a state alike in both the states, is unfaithful, prideful, avaricious, hateful, unchaste, and commits all the sins there are, and that nobody takes the slightest notice of them? They have the audacity to think that they live in the fear of the Lord and they do his works. 
although they do not seek to improve themselves in these particular items. They think that they are in a right relationship with God and that they are doing quite well so long as they, and I'll end the quote and add, don't celebrate Halloween. Right? So long, so long as we identify Halloween as evil and don't celebrate that, we must be good Christians. Meanwhile, we're not dealing with the pride, unfaithfulness, avariciousness, hatefulness, unchasteness, <laughs> unchastity, all these sorts of things. We just let them run rampant in the church. Say nothing about it in our families. See, Eric asked an honest question. I'm so glad you did, Eric. Thank you so much for your question. And he included his participation. It's great. He has a, a faithful motivation and is doing right according to his Christian conscience, handing out candy, toothpaste, and Bibles. Praise be to God for this guy's participation in Halloween. How dare anyone call it evil? That's the teaching that happens in the churchyard, on the street, dealing with the externals. That's a false piety, if you ask me. Someone trying to burden someone like Eric's conscience. I don't know if that's what's going on. I don't know, I don't know why he asked the question. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little heated here. But I, I find it very upsetting when faithful, devout Christians, people like Eric who take the time to hand out children's Bibles, wonder if it's okay for them to participate. Because Protestant preachers want to speak boldly against Halloween, but wouldn't dare say anything against the LGBTQ or critical race theory or feminism or any of the Marxist movement that's taking over our young people's hearts. Wouldn't say anything about evolutionary theory or any of this stuff. Now, that's just, you know, we don't want to upset the apple cart. Think about it. Think of the part of Halloween. The, the worst part of Halloween. The, figure it out in your brain. The thing that's like over the line, the most evil part of Halloween, that if everybody was doing that, you wouldn't participate. Got it? Okay. What's wrong with it? Nothing. Not if logical consistency is at play. American evan evangelical churches bind consciences as they teach not to celebrate Halloween, but they're perfectly fine with blatant sexual immorality every day of the week. And I'm not talking about LGBTQ stuff. I'm talking about sex outside of marriage. And not just for teenagers, which everyone still is kind of like, ooh, we shouldn't do that, although we encourage them to anyway, without everything we feed into their brains, their media that they're consuming. I'm talking about the 40-year-old single people shacking up. I'm talking about any in every example of sex outside of marriage. That is far worse than the most disturbing Halloween decoration or costume you can imagine. But we treat it like it's no big deal. In too many churches, everyone knows Jack and Diane aren't married, but they're in their 30s, so they're probably having sex. No big deal. Pastors learn not to ask those questions. Let me tell you, I feel it in my heart. I feel the desire to not go there because I know it's not going to end well, or at least I think so. And I have to get over myself to be a faithful pastor, and I have to ask those hard questions. Hey, how are you guys? I have to probe a little bit. 
because I know I'm fighting against a culture that says it's okay. And I care about people. See, the sexual immorality that we experience on a daily basis in this, in this society of ours, that's paganism. That's evil. Too many pastors today are quick to preach a scathing sermon against Halloween, but won't touch a sermon on divorce with a 10-foot pole. Why? It's not because Halloween's a bigger issue. No, not at all. Divorce is a major problem among Christians. Why aren't we preaching more about it? It's not taught because it could offend someone who's divorced. And they might get upset and leave the church, or, or they might get upset and stop putting money in the offering plate, right? Yeah. Best just stick to the low-hanging fruit and attack Halloween once a year. Look over there, everybody. Halloween is coming. It's evil. It's dark. It's bad. Yeah. It's much easier for weak pastors to preach in the courtyard, the churchyard, to convict consciences out there on the external things, the pietistic things, than it is to delve deep into the hearts of people in the church. Right? Yeah, that's the truth. Let's take another break. We'll be back for our last segment, and you will finally find out what I'm talking about with gnats and camels. And we'll finally get to the Bible verse that Luther brings to this question. Don't go away. You're listening to Cross Defense. Martin Luther wrote in his small catechism, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. He reminded the church then and today to learn by heart the basics of the Word of God and the Gospel. I'm Pastor Brady Finner, host of Concord Matters. Beginning September 24th, join me as we get back to the basics with the six chief parts. Grab your catechism and be ready for a simple, theologically rich study with lots of Jesus. Saturday mornings at 10 on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get podcasts. The question was asked, where in scripture can we find direction on this question of participation in Halloween? Now, Luther's sermon, it's based on Exodus 25 to 27 and the structure of the tabernacle. That's where he gets his sermon theme from. But the sermon itself relies on Matthew 23, 23 to 24. And here Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And Luther says this about the verse. Has our Lord himself not depicted here the foolish, perverted conscience which offends God by making important matters trifles? And trifles important. How is it that a man can take such a careful sip of outward works that he can even strain out a gnat? Oh, I can't get a gnat in my soup. I can take a, a gulp of the right works that he even swallows a camel. It is because he makes things that matter little 
if at all, into strict matters of conscience. These, these tiny little things, he, he turned into these big rules, but has a very free and easy conscience in things of great importance in which everything depends. Luther says that people who, who do this are called artienses sancti, that is, churchyard saints. You might be familiar with the, the phrase fair-weather Christian. It's that kind of a thing. These are people who are worried about the externals. They want to be seen as a Christian. They want to be seen doing the right things, what, what they're wearing, what celebrations they're keeping. Now, I agree with Eric 100% that we shouldn't be trying to see how close we can get to sinning without actually sinning. If someone is asking about participating in Halloween with this motivation. How close to the line can I get before I cross it? This is someone who, who wants to be sinning, but whose conscience is bound by the law. We're not looking for loopholes. That's not the Christian motivation. We see sin as disgusting, to be avoided, our new man doesn't want to do those things. That's a question coming from the old Adam. The old Adam's like, yeah, how do I, how do, I do more of it? And how do I, how do I get this, this uh, stick-in-the-mud guy that I'm stuck here with, how do I get him to buy into it? I can use some churchy language. How, how close can I get him to where I can have some gratification? And, and he's along for the ride. That's an old Adam question, not a new man question. If you're looking for how you can go participate in the, the Wiccan seance you know, and, and tea party over at your neighbor's house. No, don't be doing that. If you're looking for the loophole, don't participate in Halloween. But if you see Halloween to be nothing more than this external, small little gnat of a situation, your conscience isn't bound by it. Praise be to God. Because Jesus comes to free our consciences. To this we do good to pause. Pause and ask. Just real quick. With, with all clarity. Is Halloween sinful? No. It's not. Halloween is not sinful. Can it be? Sure. Like I said, if you want to have an abortion at a Satanist temple on Halloween... That's sinful. But what Eric described, the regular context of American Halloween, dressing up in a costume, even a gory costume, sending our children out to trick-or-treat with other kids, even though maybe your kids are dressed in innocent costumes, but they're, they're around other kids who aren't. Hanging decorations of skeletons or witches or zombies or whatever. That... that handing out bags of candy, toothpaste, and miniature children's Bibles on Halloween. None of that's sinful. None of it. The same goes for the consideration of horror movies and all these sorts of things. Horror movies are one of the only genres, I don't know if you know this, one of the only genres left in cinema that still deliver a clear distinction between good and evil. You can see the white hats and the black hats. You know the good guys from the bad. It's one of the, the clearest, most powerful genres of cinema left today. Everything else has been muddied and blurry and has flipped upside down. The good, the bad, the bad, the good. Not so much in horror movies. By nature of what they are. The stories they're telling. Now, I don't like horror movies that much. But I think that's more because I'm a Christian 
pastor who is looking face to face at the devil all the time. I see evil all the time. I think I have evil fatigue. <laughs> so I don't find it entertaining or an escape to go to a, a horror movie. That's why I don't like horror movies. And I don't like to be scared if I don't have to be. It's, it's just, I don't know. I think it's weird. I think y'all are weird if you want to be scared. But hey, there are Christians who don't mind being scared. A good jump scare every once in a while. My daughter loves to scare me. I come in the house, boo. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not going to pay for that. I don't, I'm not looking for that. But there are people who, do, who are, and it's not sinful. That's the point. I know devout Christians, laity and pastors, who participate in Halloween and even love horror movies. They're not forsaking the weightier matters that Jesus mentions, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are people whose hearts live in the church, not in the, on the churchyard. They're not in the parking lot. These are people who are, are at the altar. These are people who are concerned about real sins, the camels, and aren't so preoccupied with the gnats. Back to Luther's sermon on the different, different types of consciences. He says, performances bound up with food and clothes, occasion and place, make nobody righteous. You don't get more righteous because you don't celebrate Halloween. For everybody can see that such people continue to be unfaithful, avaricious, impatient, proud, unchaste, angry, and envious. In fact, nobody is more deeply involved in those sins than these very people who have equated righteousness with matters of food, clothing, and observances of time and place. We can see this all around us. Is it not time we called a halt and thought things over? This cannot be the right road of becoming righteous, Luther says. There must be another way somewhere. And because these people take such a light view of transgressing in very serious matters, we ought to be wise enough to despise the transgressions of their external pomposities in which we see so much that is corrupt. We must get into the habit of looking in the right direction. Luther gives an example of this, and I'm going to update it for you according to this Halloween question. Imagine you were to meet a, a slanderer or a vulgar gossip, Luther says. And then you were to meet another man who celebrated Halloween. Would you not be 10 times more shocked by the first man, the gossiper, than by the second? Would you not regard the second man as one who swallowed a gnat and the first as one who swallowed a camel? Now, I want to pause right here, and I want to say, actually, I don't think in American society today too many people will be that appalled meeting a gossip or a slanderer. Our consciences are that numb. That's the real sin. But we want to make a big deal out of the, the Christians who celebrate Halloween. It's a mountain out of a molehill situation. We got all kinds of phrases that talk about this. All of this is coming from the churchyard preachers and the churchyard saints. Now, Reverend Luther takes us into the nave and into the sanctuary, into the church. He says, this means teaching works and concepts of conscience, which are really good. Not those that appear good on the outside. Yeah, everyone can see evil on display when it comes to Halloween. You can see the representations of evil. Yeah, they sell them in the store. And everyone can understand how dressing up as a crayon is more innocent than an axe murderer. 
but it's not what's on display that ultimately captures our attention. It's what's underneath the costume that is of great interest to us. That's the camel. The costume is the gnat. Think about 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 15. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Things on display are easier to identify. In another place, Luther says this. This is great. The multiform corruption of nature, all the many ways of our corrupted nature, should not be extenuated, mitigated, but greatly magnified. It should be pointed out that man has fallen from the image of God, from the knowledge of God, has fallen into blasphemies against God, into hatred, into contempt of God, into enmity with God. These facts, I say, should be stressed. If we do not know the magnitude of the disease, we shall neither know nor desire the remedy. For the more you extenuate sin, downplay it, push it aside, the less value you attach to grace. There's a good argument to be made here that the representation of evil that we see on display on Halloween, that it can actually serve the Christian in a way that's similar to, say, Ash Wednesday. When we see the skeletons and the zombies and the witches and the devils, we're reminded of the consequence of sin, if we're thinking about it theologically. It can be a night of remembrance for Christians, wherein we see the disease unveiled, which is very in keeping with it being the eve of All Saints Day. We want to remember to walk like the saints, to be a Christian and therefore to avoid death and hell and the devil. Binding consciences with churchyard issues are what the sects love to do. As sanctuary Christians, we want to get the teaching from inside the church, from the holy place, not the parking lot, but the holy of holies, inside. Luther preaches that we learn about humility, meekness, gentleness, peace, fidelity, love, propriety, purity, and the like inside the church. These are not bound up with food and clothing or with place, time, or person. This is what God looks for. Faithfulness. He who takes this course, Luther says, is traveling on the right road to heaven. It's in the nave that we ought to make it a matter of conscience if anybody blasphemes, swears, or speaks uncleanly, or if anybody hears or sees or does or thinks anything improper. That constitutes the true conscience. Here in the heart, deep in the church, not out here on the externals in the parking lot. It's here that a man strains camels and swallows gnats. Strain out the big sin. Take in whatever comes your way as you're striving to to be a devout Christian. 
Remember, Luther is not speaking literally. He's, he's not talking about the actual parking lot of the church, okay? The churchyard burdening of consciences, it's legalism. We want to free people from such an abuse of the scriptures. Halloween. Is it acceptable? Sure, have at it. Have a good time. If your conscience is bothered by it and you recognize that it, there's some evil in it, consider it a gnat. And ask yourself, what's the camel? Are you so focused on, on eating your soup so carefully that you're straining out the gnat, but then you're taking in the giant camel? What's the issue? What's the bigger problem? Where should you be focused on? The weightier things. Are you putting your, your whole trust in Christ on the cross? Or are you living as if, oh yeah, I'm, I, 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 yeah, I'm saved. Jesus died for me. Yeah, no big deal. Oh, but Halloween's evil. Ooh, stay away from that. Yeah, but Jesus, yeah. Yeah, he died for me. Strong Christian consciences strain camels and swallow gnats. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense, cross defenders? It's sort of like you know, running before you learn to walk. It's, it's, it's not working. In the church, not in the churchyard, not the parking lot, but not on the surface, but deep within, a man must fight against pride, against avarice, immodesty, anger, hatred, and things like these. Here we must keep ourselves fully occupied as long as we live in the church, in the heart, in the matters of, of faith, in the heart, deep within. Who cares what it looks like on the outside? God cares about your heart. We must be fully occupied with these things as long as we live so as to forget the churchyard altogether, to not want it, we want, to, we want to build up our brother's consciences. We want to strengthen people with our, with our lives. We want to be able to live. We want to be so focused on our, on our faith in Christ, those weighty things, justice and mercy and faithfulness, being justified by our Lord's life, death, and crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, all these things, looking at Jesus that we, we just forget about the binding of the consciences in the churchyard. We've been inside the church so long, we don't even remember what goes on out there. That's the point. We don't want to be out in the churchyard. We want to be in the pew. Remember, this is a metaphor. I want you to be in the pew too, but this is a metaphor. Here we see what is the proper road to piety, Luther says. The proper road to holiness. For we see for ourselves that those who practice this become truly righteous people. But those who practice churchyard, that is, quote-unquote, churchyard piety, they don't become righteous. Not within. So uh, we're running out of time. <laughs> I'd like to be able to say more, but we get an hour in each episode. Let's review. Is it acceptable for a Christian to participate in Halloween? By which we mean handing out candy, dressing up, etc. Some consciences might be burdened. This is true. Because they've received teaching, and a lot of us have because we live in a very 
non-denominational, generically Protestant, not really actively Christian culture. And so we've received teaching that's bound up our consciences in this swarm of gnats out in the churchyard. Some consciences, however, are not burdened by these external things because their consciences have been relieved of them. They've forgotten what it's like to be out in the churchyard because they are so immersed in the heavy things of the faith. What's going on in front of the church means nothing to them anymore because they're focused on the deeper teachings in the sanctuary. That's where God wants you, my friend. That's where God wants you. He doesn't want us to return freed consciences back into slavery, as Paul says. But the opposite. He wants bound consciences to be freed. And of course, this goes for more than just Halloween and horror movies, etc. Thanks for the question, Eric. And thank you, all you Cross Defense listeners, for listening today. Until next time, Christ be with you. And happy Halloween. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.